Hello and welcome to episode 131 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast with me, Anthony Samroff, the effervescent Tom Laird. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome a very special guest this week, one of Great Britain's leading libertarian figures, Sean Gabb. Um, thanks very much for joining us on the show, Sean. Thank you, Anthony. It's a great pleasure to be, it's a great pleasure to be on and a great honour to have been invited. Well, it's a great honour to have you. Uh, what, one of the things I was thinking is a lot of, well, almost all of the critique of conservatism in this country comes from the left, naturally, and there's really not that much to it, but there is a libertarian critique of the Conservative Party and the Conservative movement in this country, and uh, I can't help but look at your Facebook feed and find you expressing in the most elegant terms your outrage at what's going on in the Conservative Party and I think this might be of interest uh, to our American listeners as well because we're going to go back in time a bit because you had a relation maybe you can yeah tell us a little bit about your history of a relationship with the Conservative Party and we can start there. I, I, I come from a Conservative family not, not in the sense that I come from a family of conservative politicians or, or even high-level conservative activists. I, I come from a family of small conservatives, uh, of people who've always voted conservative with a capital C. And that was my default political viewpoint. Uh, until I was about 17, when I discovered I was a libertarian, and um, since Margaret Thatcher was at the time making all sorts of um, interesting waves, I, I found myself no longer languidly pro-conservative. I, I became for a few years very much, um, very much a conservative activist. I, uh, my first experience of political campaigning was in the 1979 general election. And that, I'm afraid, was, was the high point of my enthusiasm for the Conservative Party. It, I won't say it's been downhill all the way ever since, but if you draw a line of best fit through my various views of the Conservative Party, it, uh, well, it, it has been downhill all the way. Uh, my, my objection is this. When I look at the leftist complaints about Conservative governments, The Guardian, The New States and the BBC, when I'm told that these people are believe are unreconstructed believers in economic laissez-faire who want to cut government spending, who, who want to cut taxes, who are completely hostile to any kind of regulation, then I thrill to that. It, it makes you want to run out and vote conservative. It, it, the problem is that the left is wrong. The Conservatives are not this. The, the Conservatives are, are simply a party of what until recently was closet leftists and has, since David Cameron's day and perhaps a few years before, been um, openly, unashamedly um, leftists. That's, I think that is the summary of my disenchantment with the Conservative Party. Oh, there's also the fact that they have, they have done more than any Labour government ever did to turn this country into a grotesque but sinister police state. Right. Would you care to expand on that a little more? Me? Oh, very well. well yeah, what, what, what's a few, what, a few, you know, really, concrete granite examples of, 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 of that maybe in, in, in recent times well or even funny. going back to yeah, back to Thatcher I suppose with the with her bans on, on free speech yeah the public order act 1986 yeah. which is the origin of most modern um, attacks on freedom of speech in this country it's the public order act which is used against Christian evangelists when they turn up mm. banging on about um, gay sex and Islam or, or there's the 
the only really serious uh, attacks on our right to keep and bear arms for the defence, the Firearms Act of 1988 and the two Firearms Acts of 1997, the, the, one of them passed by a Conservative government and um, what really amounts to a tidying up exercise passed later in the year by a, a Labour government. Or you can look at the Psycho-Substances Act of uh, 2017, which, um, which makes everything illegal except those things which are expressly stated to be illegal uh, during the committee stage of the bill. Um, it, it turned out that as it was, act, as it was drafted, um, an act would make Earl Grey tea illegal, and so the um, and so the bill had to be redrafted in places. Now, now these are the acts of conservative governments, and uh, I, I've got to the point, or I've got to the point several years ago, where I just couldn't see any substantive difference between the conservative and labor government uh, conservative and labor parties the only reason yeah. for many years that i have voted conservative is that on the balance of awfulness the, the conservatives have been slightly less awful than labor um it's a bit like having to choose between east germany and poland but um yeah. in, in or, or being punched in the face or kicked in the testicles yeah <laughs> that's right yes what is it um a snot sandwich or a turd pizza that sort of thing <laughs> but in the past year i i just i've just given up the conservatives are a lost cause there are many good people in the conservative party i bumped into one yesterday um when i was Forgive me. I, I bumped into a conservative friend yesterday in, in Deal High Street, and we spoke uh, about how dreadful things were. He's still a conservative councillor, but he's joined the Brexit party. Um, he told me he's a member of both parties at the moment, and he'll see how it goes. Is that possible within the constitution of the Conservative Party? I mean, the, no, are we allowed to do that? Um, but unless I write a letter to the chairman of the Conservative Party saying John Smith has just confessed to me that he's a member of the <laughs> Brexit Party as well, not much they can do, is there? Well, he, they, they, I suppose he kind of has just convinced, confessed now by proxy. So yeah, <laughs> you, you don't have to. You, you don't have to. Even nowadays in England, you don't need to have your party affiliations tattooed on your forehead. Uh, but, yeah. Um, no. I, I won't say I've dumped the Conservative Party. It may be that I'll come limping back like some whipped dog before the next election because I shall be persuaded one last time that it's better to go with these horrors than to put up with Jeremy Corbyn. But, um, you know, that would be the only reason why I could justify voting Conservative next time, and I suspect it won't be enough. And would it, if I'm not would, would it, would it maybe, maybe, would it maybe be a good thing? I'm just, I'm just positing the, the thought here that the Conservative Party did get beat at the next election, and obviously, you know, Corbyn comes in with all his awfulness, but. It may cause the, the Conservative Party to disintegrate, and if the Conservative Party disintegrates, and I know Peter Hitchens has deposited this theory before, so it's not mine, that partly the only reason the Labour Party exists is because the Conservative Party exists. If it didn't, I mean, if it kind of dissolved, then they would lose their raison d'etre, and they're just every bit as divided, if not more, than the Conservatives. They might break up, and we might actually get some movement in British politics away from the, the, the two-party inertia? Or is that just a price too high to pay? I don't know. Um, the elements of risk in that um, strategy or, or in that wish list is mm. this, that um, although I don't like the Conservatives, they play by the constitutional rules. 
but by which I mean, and by which I sometimes lament, that a Conservative government does not go out of its way to make a Labour victory at the next election impossible. Whereas Labour governments do not and never have played by those rules. And when we had the Blair and Brown governments, they made it almost impossible to succeed in British politics as a traditionalist conservative. And a Corbyn government, with all its vast powers of patronage, uh, and with its general uh, leftist revolutionary um, mindset, yeah. might actually make it impossible for any um, alternative party to take power without a violent revolution. That's the right. danger. I'm not frightened of a Labour government that's promising to renationalise the railways or renationalise British Telecom or raise the top rate of income tax to 95% or something. All of these are undesirable, I fully accept, but they're also reversible. It's the, um, it's the element of cultural and legal and administrative um, revolution in another Labour government that frightens me. Uh, and so I, I seem to be talking myself into giving these jokers one last chance the next election, but let me continue. Um, with all their disgustingness, which is there on display like a dog turd steaming on a hot pavement, the, the Conservatives, you can be quite sure, will allow another free general election in which opposition parties can put forward candidates and diverse points of view. Whereas I'm not sure that other Labour government mm. would do that. If you think that British politics is so degenerate that there is no peaceful way out, then it may well be a good idea to spin the wheel and try a Labour government. But I'm not sure that we have gone quite that far. Okay. So I've got a question for you because uh, a lot of libertarians have a high esteem of Thatcher. Why do you think, especially, I guess, maybe younger generation libertarians who've come into the movement and gone through YouTube and seen a few videos that they really like and so forth. Can you say a little bit about your the evolution of your relationship to Thatcher under her tenure and also why they're wrong to think that she is a hero to our movement? Oh, I suppose two reasons. Um, when I was a boy, I worshipped her. I thought she was the, re the political reincarnation of John Stuart Mill. You, you, you can forgive teenage boys any number of follies, but that one, I, I suppose, might require an apology rather than forgiveness. Um, two things about Margaret Thatcher. The first thing is that she was the first architect of the British police state. Almost every precedent used by later governments to um, break down the rule of law and to abolish freedom of speech and association. Those precedents were laid down by Margaret Thatcher um, and by the successor major government. The second reason is that although Margaret Thatcher was remarkably good, impressively good at crushing her enemies, she, she tended to choose the wrong enemies. She thought the enemy was a, a bunch of aging trade unionists, people who'd fought on the, on the uh, whichever side was more wicked in the Spanish Civil War, uh, people who'd marched on the Jarrow um, Hunger Crusade or whatever, um, the, uh, the coal miners. These were not the enemy. Well, they were an enemy. They were, they were an inconvenience, but that was all. The real enemy, from the moment she became prime minister and for a few years beforehand, was a group of young men and women, quite often still at university when she came in, who wore suits, who were not particularly interested in socialist solutions. They had no fixed views on the top rate of income tax or who should own the telephone company. Uh, people 
who wanted to bring about a total transformation of British life to force everyone to, to agree with their own conception of the good. Um, a, a group of neo-Puritans. These were the enemy, the Blairites, the Brownites, the, um, the cultural Marxists, the cultural leftists, wh whatever you want to call them, they were the enemy. They were the people who should have been carefully frozen out from all preferments during the Thatcher decade. But because they weren't trade unionists, because they didn't wear donkey jackets with band the bomb badges and stuff all over them, she did everything short of rolling out the red carpet for them, that they were people she could work with. And of course, they were the enemy. And, and so Margaret Thatcher had 10 years in which she could have brought about a positive transformation of the country. Um, during that time, she made during that time, she began to turn the country into a police state in the classical sense. And during that time, she made sure that all of the essential preferments in a culture war that she didn't even notice went to the left. That's my objection to Margaret Thatcher. I suppose you get a third one, which is that she stuffed the working class when there was absolutely no good reason for doing that. Um, indeed. Um, I make it sound rather blood, but she stuffed the working class, yeah. which is in itself a bad thing. Um, what, what specifically? All right. One of the main because problems. I mean the classic view of her would be upward mobility. She, you know, sold the she allowed people to buy the made it easier for working class people to buy their own home. Whether that's yeah. a good idea or not is another debate, but. People would have seen these things as a as a as a, a a way of bringing the working classes, giving them more upward mobility, so to speak, and 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 eroding that old order of the old boys network. Um, well, the old boys network was eroded, but a new boys network was very quickly set up, and it's yeah. far more okay. malevolent than the old one. But what I'd say is that in 1979, um, British industry employed millions of men skilled, semi-skilled, unskilled men in reasonably secure, reasonably well-paid work that gave them dignity and security. I, I'm not defending the, um, I'm not defending the old nationalized industries, I'm not defending the ludicrous um, practices of the British trade union movement, but uh, what I'll say is this, one of the problems that we faced in 1979 was that um, the, the state sector was hemorrhaging red ink and the monetization of the debt was um, causing a, a most irritating inflation. The, the way to deal with that inflation would have been to cut government spending, um, to cut spending on bureaucrats and to shut down various programs. What the government did instead was to raise interest rates to choke off the inflation, which led in various ways, which I won't outline, to the collapse of something like a third of British industry in three years, throwing millions, many millions, many more than the three million headline unemployed, throwing millions of skilled, semi-skilled and unskilled men onto the bread, onto the doll. And um, there's no point celebrating the new jobs that replaced them, and there have been new jobs. These are far more menial and far less secure than the old jobs that they replace. And this has led to, this has led to a, a cultural degradation of the British working classes. Um, people are angry and frightened when the bottom drops out of their world, and they are rightly angry when they suspect that the bottom has been kicked out of their world, which is what Margaret Thatcher did. There had to be some industrial restructuring at the beginning of the 1980s, for reasons I won't bother explaining, but uh, this didn't have to be in the context of super high um, interest rates 
and um, a correspondingly overvalued exchange rate, which led to the collapse of entire sectors of the industrial economy. I argued once dramatically, and I don't know if I'm right or not, if I was well, right Well, you, you always not. argue dramatically, aren't you? Thank you. Uh, I, I'd like to think so, that perhaps uh, Thatcher had done more damage to the philosophy of laissez-faire capitalism by association than anyone on the left could have done, also obviously association with taking away civil liberties and an intrusive foreign policy, as well as increasing the size of government while um, claiming to be a laissez-faire. Could you evaluate my paper? What do, what, what do I get? Is it correct or, or uh, well, do I, I get a pass? I'd need to look at the chain of argumentation and the referencing, but the overall thesis sounds a very good one. I put that right. up in the 80s. I, I entirely agree with you. Margaret Thatcher, by so far as she claimed to be some kind of classical liberal, and so far as she was cried up as some kind of classical liberal, Ma Margaret Thatcher did a great deal of damage to our cause. Uh, the, the stupid, it may have been taken out of context, but the stupid claim she made to that women's magazine back in 1989, I think it was, there is no such thing as society. Um, well, yes, there is such a thing as society, and it, it's a very important conservative thing, and indeed a libertarian thing. But... Uh, is it not yes. more true to say there are societies? There are societies, but there is an overall society of societies. And um, although if you look at the quote, it, it looks like a crude statement of methodological individualism, it, it is something that a, an elected politician should have more intelligence than to spit out. It's something I might say, sounding off in an expansive mood, uh, but I, I thought professional elected politicians were rather more careful about the things they said. Yes, and of course, without the state, um, who is going to take up the roles that the state provides, mm. the roles that we wish to preserve without society to take up the slack you know i was asked about a question in a previous show about i can't remember what it was but i was like well you know that's not really the role of government that's the role of society mm -hmm. um so we we need to be able to contrast one or, or the other although i may have been guilty of the blunder of saying there's no such thing in a, a society in a heated debate myself so what do you see as the defining difference or differences indeed between a a conservative in this country and a libertarian. Not I. Not I mean. I don't mean the conservatives in government now. What you hold the ideal of a conservative ought to be uh, in in Great Britain, and what a libertarian ought to be. Um, the th think about the, okay, the difference between a libertarian and a conservative, uh, as reasonably defined in this country is very small. It's a spectrum with quite a broad grey middle. Um, if you are an English or a British Conservative, you will believe in preserving or in restoring or both a, a set of institutions which include things like freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of association, the right to trial by jury, the right to an independent private sphere, um, a, a belief in free enterprise and so on. Uh, and so if you are a, um, a, a British conservative, or perhaps you can't be a British conservative, if you're an English conservative, you are necessarily at least a, a, a rather dirty libertarian. And I would suggest also that uh, if you are a libertarian in this country, then you, you should have some regard to these historic institutions, which do embody quite a lot of um, quite a lot of libertarianism. And so, I, I wouldn't say that on, on the one hand you have libertarians, on the other hand you have conservatives in this country. 
what you have is um, it, it's a cluster and some people will show themselves as more towards the conservative end of the spectrum and some as more towards the libertarian end but I, I don't see any clear divide I'm not saying that we all agree on everything. We certainly don't, but um, we are members of the same family. I mean, I've, I've heard you use the term, I've not heard you, but I've seen you written, use the term paleo-libertarian. What, what, what do you mean by that? How would oh, that's you an American it? phrase. And okay. I, I think it would be wrong of me to try defining uh, an ideology uh, um, to, to which I do not knowingly subscribe. Um, right. I'm an English conservative libertarian, or perhaps I'm English conservative, or perhaps I'm a, a, a perhaps I'm a libertarian. I, I'm I'm not sure, but um, I am not the sort of libertarian who sneers at tradition, and I can't think of many libertarians who do, to be honest. And I'm not the sort of conservative who despises individual liberty either. Right. Okay. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me put you right on the spot. Define English. Oh, must I do that? English is English. <laughs> it's better like asking me to define... Um, I mean, John Cleese got into a rather lot of trouble recently for saying that London wasn't an English city anymore uh, because of the fury. Well... If you define non-English uh, as people who were born outside uh, outside England, it's quite hard to argue that English that, that London is an English city. But um, yeah. you know that's um, bearing bear in mind the laws that we have in this country, and bearing in mind the way in which those laws are enforced, and, and there are shadowy agencies in charge of ensuring ideological conformity that's perhaps a subject best um, left to yeah. another time so yeah. i had a thought um i don't know if this is really relevant another one another one yeah Lord I mean, save us. two in one day that's uh, pretty good going for me i should write precedent down, uh, lest i forget them uh rand's complaints ayn rand of course of the uh conservatives arguments to justify capitalism which she said were you know the argument from faith well you know it's the christian way or the argument for tradition to which she said well it might be pretty dumb to believe that something's good just because it's new but it's even more dumb to assume that it's good just because it's old okay we get into the reads with that one um, and also the finally the argument from depravity oh humans just aren't good enough for capitalism you know uh, people are too selfish for socialism and she said well basically what by not justifying capitalism based on reason that um, they were basically leaving themselves open to the left saying that they were rational you know that their socialism was scientific now I think that is where whether you disagree in the reads I think maybe at least I identify even by myself as, although the more I've explored, the more I see that I actually have in common with traditional conservatism, saw myself as, um, in the same way, a, an extension of the Enlightenment tradition and bringing, you know, that we should, yeah, tradition is actually empirically verified in a way and, and, and it's not always but often it is it stood the test of time but that would be giving a reason for why we should not dismiss tradition rather than just saying it's good because it's old we'll say well look it seems to have lasted a pretty long time let's look at whether it's good or not before just chucking it out so for me i i suspect but i'm not sure one of the distinctions is that a form of argumentation which seems to run through all of libertarian thought but in my experience not an awful lot of conservative thought at least in, in recent times but the the desire to make arguments and appeals to evidence Rather, uh, do you think that's a reasonable distinction? 
It is a reasonable distinction, but they're not mutually exclusive. It is possible to make a compelling rational case for a at least a limited government society with a very high degree of economic of personal freedom, which includes economic freedom. Uh, you can make these arguments on purely rational grounds, whether of natural right or utility, whichever you prefer. But we must accept it as an added bonus that in this country we are talking about a system which, though imperfectly, has been tried and which was successful for many centuries. If something is old and established, there is a reasonable presumption, not um, an irrebuttable presumption, but there is a reasonable presumption that it contains an element of the truth. And there is also the fact that um, most people, without despising ordinary people in any sense, but most people are not that interested in abstract ideas. Maybe rightly mm -hmm. they're not interested in abstract ideas. And they will be much happier to accept institutions like trial by jury and freedom of the press if you show that they have existed time out of mind than if you try bringing out a connected argument from first principles. And so I would, I, I, I am very dubious about those libertarians, including Ayn Rand, who was a sort of libertarian, who uh, despise tradition in principle. Some traditions are evil. Indeed. But I think all of them. Yeah. Indeed, most of them aren't. Can I just, well, can I just say a minute here? Every, every time you move around or whatever your, your mic on your, your lapel, yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind okay. of, it's, it's causing the camera to jump around a lot, and it's just, yeah. Okay, just, thanks, uh, but I'll mute when I'm not speaking. <laughs> okay, Okay. Cool. Well, well said, Sean, that was very articulate. So, uh, do you have a question, Tom? No, not at this juncture. Okay. Carry on with yours. Let's take it up to date. Let's talk a little bit about what's absurd with the Conservative Party at the moment. <laughs> it would be what isn't absurd with the Conservative Party at the moment would be a shorter list. It but would be, wouldn't it? But we've got a bit of time left on the show, so you okay. might. Well, okay. For, for British listeners, I have nothing to say. I have nothing to say that you haven't heard and read many times in many other places, but uh, there may be an American following. And so I'll say this very briefly. When, when the referendum three years ago went to leave, the Conservative Party found itself in a position where it could easily establish electoral hegemony for an entire generation. All it had to do was say, ah, the people want to leave, we want to leave, we're going to leave. It, it had to secure a reasonable withdrawal from the European Union. This did not have to be um, the hard Brexit, the no deal Brexit that we're now talking about. All it had to be was a defensible withdrawal. And although it meant unpicking a set of economic and administrative relationships which had built up over 40 years, the reason we employ these people, the reason we give them those fancy salaries and those um, nice black ministerial cars and a green light to consume drugs and to, and to consort with various kinds of prostitutes is because they are quite good at doing this sort of thing. It's just that three years later, we still haven't left the European Union and the Conservative Party is hovering on the edge of political oblivion. And th th there's only two possible explanations for this. One is that the Conservatives are some kind of controlled opposition to the real establishment. The, the other is that they're a bunch of total incompetence. And um, I tend to I, 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 I tend, I, I incline to both views of them. 
They are a controlled opposition. They have been for a long time. And they're also deeply incompetent. How on earth could they have done this? I won't say how could they have done this to us because we're not that important to them. But how could they have done this to themselves? They're going to lose their seats. That there may be 150 conservative members of parliament who after the next election will have to go and look for jobs. They've done this to themselves. And but, I mean, so so are, we, are we witnessing the, the greatest uh, mass suicide since the Jonestown massacre then, politically speaking? Like that. Yes, yeah. they really... But is it not just a case of that uh, weedy guy at school who's really in love with this girl and uh, she rejects him the first time, So she, uh, but then she decides to give him a chance and he's just like, please like me, please like me, I'll bring you some flowers. And the more that he does to court her favour, the more she despises him, except for the, Brit uh, the British public or the left are the girl and the Conservative Party are the man instead of stra standing up straight um, and with their shoulders back? With their shoulders back, that's what I was looking for. And being a man and having principles and saying, This is what I want uh, and this is what I'm going to do, uh, constantly trying to suck up and become presentable and likable um, in ways that do nothing but compromise. The, not only their principles, but as you've rightly pointed out, themselves, their very livelihoods. I think that's a very fair analysis. Um, 35 years ago, the Conservatives allowed the cultural high ground to be captured totally by the left. Uh, and so ever since then, they have been trying to make themselves presentable to the... Um, They've been trying to make themselves presentable to the establishment culture, and they can't. The only way that they can make themselves at all presentable is by committing suicide. Um, but I, I do think it goes deeper than that. These people are stupid and useless. And it, it may be a good idea just to grit your teeth and to vote for the Brexit party at the next election, even if this does result in, um, even if this does result in mutually assured destruction of both movements and the election mm. of a Corbyn government, because we do not have a meaningful conservative party in this country. And mm. the only way to get one perhaps is to see the present one disintegrate. Just, just to reel it back to the to the, to the Brexit fiasco, um, what would have been I mean, taking the the so-called the so-called cliff edge hard Brexit, taking that off the table, what would have been your preferred option, Sean? The Norway option or or something else? I think there's a lot to be said for the Norway option. Let me explain what that is, as far as I understand yeah. it. We rejoin the European Free Trade Association and we remain members, we remain within the European single market. We are outside the customs union, but we are in the regulatory union, which means that we would need to comply with a certain number of European regulations. We would also need to pay into various European projects over which we did not have much formal control. And so it's not hard Brexit, it's not with a jump, with a bound he was free. On the other hand, we are outside the political structures of the European yeah. Union. We're outside the political structures of the European Union without the sudden and maybe serious economic shock of just walking away. It gives us the time in which to look around and decide, well, what do we want to do next? Do we want to move towards um, some kind of libertarian equivalent of North Korea? Uh, do we want, and I'd be rather worried about doing it, do, do we want to um, get into bed with the Americans? Do we want, to, what do we want to do? Uh, but. The, the Norway option or the European Free Trade Association option would 
have given us it would have given us a reasonable brexit not total brexit and um the the establishment could have found all sorts of ways to carry on sitting on the table of european integration but that's in different places but it would have been a good compromise and something which we must accept um, is that although the levers won we won 52 to 48. That's not a convincing knockdown victory. It could have gone either way. Uh, and so the 48% of people who, for whatever reason, want to stay in the European Union should be taken into account. There you are. Some people call me a Eurosceptic headbanger. But um, okay. if, you want, if you want to run a stable political system which um, pays some regard to um, the long-term interests of the country as a whole. You cannot regard this kind of binary referendum which was not a, a straight, to which there was not a straightforward victory. And, and I do bear in mind that Scotland voted to remain in. That there must be a degree of compromise. And um, what, what you call the Norway option, which may be the same as the option I've just outlined, seems to me to have been the best solution to, to the political crisis thrown up by Brexit in June 2016. It may be too late to pursue this now. It may be that we now have no reasonable choice except either hard Brexit or revoke Article 50. But if the Conservatives had been any good at all, they'd have stood up after the referendum, said, well, the people have spoken, and this is what we understand them to have said. And some people would have said, no, this is Brexit in name only, this is wrong. But I suspect most people would have said, yeah, that's all right. The Europeans were in a state of shock for about six months after the referendum, and they would probably have grabbed this with both hands and there'd have been none of this paralysis over the Irish backstop and um, all the rest of it, no 39 billion. Um, it could have been sorted out by Christmas 2016. In instead, the, the, Conservatives, the Conservatives pushed forward some useless woman who wouldn't last five minutes uh, as a dental receptionist, uh, as the person to deliver Brexit. This is mostly her fault, but it's also the fault of the people who allowed her to carry on for so long. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth mentioning just here that for any of our American listeners, when you, you mentioned Scotland and Scotland, Scotland you know, voted against uh, Brexit. Apparently, that's what we're told. It's not quite as clear cut as that because Scotland also voted to remain part of the UK. And when you do that, you agree to, to take what comes with that. So, you, you know, when you, when you decide that you want to remain part of the UK and then the SNP take part in a UK election and then when they don't like the result of that UK election, um, you know, they, they, they want it both ways. The SNP want their cake and eat it. And there's a lot of people in Scotland I know who voted uh, remain, not out of any sincere love for the European Union or any kind of love for the European Union, but they saw it merely as a tool, a device by which they could then push for a second referendum uh, for Scottish independence. And really, that when I mean, the SNP have more... Brexit voters in their ranks per capita than any other party in the UK. So for the SNP to posture and masquerade and claim, oh, we're so pro-Europe. No, I don't think that's an accurate picture of Scotland. I think it's an, actual, an accurate picture of the leadership of the SNP and probably the leadership, sadly, of all the major parties in Scotland, including the supposed Conservative Unionist Party led by Ruth Davidson, who I'm convinced one day set out to join the Labour Party and simply got on the wrong queue and it worked out very well for her. It wouldn't <laughs> surprise me. Look, I, I'm not Scottish. Um, yeah. I have I have a mild bias in favour of maintaining the union. 
but this really has to be a union based on the mutual affection of the two peoples concerned. Um, when I hear Scottish Unionists talking about the economic benefits that flow from the connection with England, I, I turn rather chilly because this is not this is not an argument for building a single yeah. nation of two peoples. But um, going back to the was it the 2014 referendum? I can't remember. Was it 2015? Um, of the, for the, 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 the yes no referendum for Scotland. Yeah. Uh, was, I think it was 2014. Yeah. yeah. One of the arguments put forward by the Unionists was that um, as part of the United Kingdom, Scotland was part of the European Union and that if Scotland voted for independence, it would not automatically um, mm. enjoy European Union membership. And um, the Brexit referendum results um, has necessarily invalidated some part of the unionist, the unionist argument in 2014. Uh, and so if we do leave the European Union, in, in any sense that is reasonably damaging, there is a legitimate case for another Scottish referendum. Mm. Uh, yes. I'm speaking as an outsider, but um, the, the, the Unionist case in 2014 turned out to be partly a false prospectus. Yeah. Right. So am I... I think if my memory serves you well, you were one of the minority of libertarians in the country who actually argued that there was some good libertarian reasons for staying in the Euro uh, European Union. Am I right about that? Yes, you were. So would you um, illustrate those for us? Because many of us may not have heard them before. Uh, the European Union is a customs union and a regulatory union. It, it is essentially about economics. It, 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 is, it is a highly corporatist structure, but nirvana for the, European, for the European Commission is to have one giant vacuum cleaner factory for Europe, preferably owned by a cousin of one of the commissioners. And this is not a tremendously desirable thing but uh, it, it's also not the sort of thing that will destroy us in any meaningful sense. All of the bad things which have been done to us in the past 40 years by Conservative and Labour parties, the, the police state, the lunatic foreign policy uh, and those dreadful wars, and uh, the, the, the rise of political correctness. These have nothing whatever to do with the European Union. Um, much of the environmental nonsense inflicted on us may come in name from Brussels, but it was largely pushed for in Brussels by British representatives. Many of the bad things done to us allegedly by the European Union are, are, are done at the behest of the British ruling class. Uh, and so, in that sense, Europe stands acquitted of um, uh, of ruining the country. Indeed, you can make a more positive case. Um, before the British government can impose a, a, an evil set of copyright arrangements on us, for example, it, it needs to get the consent of 27 other um, governments of the member states. And these are not all uh, directed by certifiable lunatics. If you remember the debates over the copyright directive, which was pushed for very, very heavily by, by the British government, um, this was resisted tooth and nail by the Poles, the Swedes, the Czechs, uh, and various other um, European governments. But they were they were steamrolled by a coalition put together by the British government. So um, there is a vaguely libertarian case for the European Union, or at least if you try to make if you try to make a case that the European Union is an anti-libertarian enterprise, then that there are arguments to acquit the European Union of this. 
Uh, I mean, on balance, yeah. I think we should be out of the European Union. Um, but I am in no doubt whatsoever that the greatest enemies we're the people face are not in Brussels, not even in Washington, but in London. And in your case, maybe in Edinburgh as well. Yeah, I would, I would, I would say that that, that is true. I just, I'm just wary about the danger of constantly seeking a higher, bigger power to solve our problems locally. You know, we can't, we can't solve these problems. We'll go to the EU to do it, and if they can't do it, let's appeal to Caesar. You know, let's go to the, the to the UN and you know all the way up the ladder mm. until that it's, you know, and yeah, you have to accept then that even though the that it does maybe go your way and you go, well, that was a good decision, then it is going to not go your way sometimes as well. And I think for me, speaking in Scotland, because it's an argument we have here within libertarians, what would be worse, an independent Scotland, even though independence, autonomy, self-reliance, uh, these are all very much integral to libertarianism, would it would a, an independent Scotland be worse? I think in many ways it would, but I think in the end it's easier for me to convince six million people of my arguments than it is to convince 60 million people of my arguments or 600 million people of my arguments. So I think on the principle of subsidiarity, I think it's probably best in the long run. I could be crashingly wrong about that. <laughs> No, I think um, I think it is an entirely valid argument. There are good arguments on both sides. Um, the reason the reason I'm mildly, languidly in, in favour of continuing the union of England and Scotland is because it would be a bit of a nuisance to have to right. to have to untangle things. But right. if, if there were a, a settled continuous preference in Scotland for independence, then of course it would have to be satisfied and there would be benefits on the English side. We, we would, we would, um, well, we'd lose an entire tranche of the British left for a start. Right, that's yeah. true. Um, from my perspective, I didn't actually vote in the first referendum because I thought, you know, I didn't have a crystal ball to see which, or, and I thought it was maybe a little bit conceited to think that I knew, plus it was much more uh, uh, anarchy inclined at the time uh, when it came to voting. But like you, I had a mild preference for maintaining the union uh, for similar reasons um, that it seemed like a lot of fuss and hard to reverse. And I also didn't want, you know, the People's Republic of Scotland up here. Um, mm. I had a mild preference for staying in the U UK, but I wasn't strongly for that. And I thought it would be okay if yes won. However, now actually, and this is, I've just had a little bit of a switch. Like my, my pendulum swung the other way, not because I personally, because of what I want, but when I saw that Brexit map, I thought, this is more evidence that Scotland is culturally quite different from England and that actually, in principle at least, I believe that um, geographical areas that are relatively culturally homogenous are better off forming governments because there's less social upheaval. So even if it doesn't go my way, am I going to go with the principle that I believe in or am I going to say, well, you know, that sucks to uh, that doesn't suit me because you know I actually don't, you know, I, I, in this case, I lose out by Scotland uh, uh, by not yeah. sharing culture, Scotland's more cultural yeah. mores. Well, I, I suppose the last thing we could um, agree on, perhaps, is that the failure of the Conservative government, and by extension, the failure of the British ruling class to deliver a reasonable Brexit has put everything else on the table or back on the table. Electoral reform, um, independence for Scotland, um, you name it, it's all there on the table. 
for discussion. It didn't have to be this way. Uh, a, a, a quick agreement in the autumn of 2016 on rejoining EFTA, etc. And we would now be probably arguing about the finance of local government or, or schemes of agricultural um, protection. Mm. But it didn't work out like that. And so um, if you want to make the case for Scottish independence, there is a case to be made, just as there is a case for made against it, and a case for almost any anything which until a few years ago, anything until this year was considered a wild, utopian, or simply off the agenda. It is now potentially on the agenda. So... Mm. I don't know whether to regard this as a benefit or an undesirable side effect, but um, the failure of the people who rule us, whoever they may be and however you care to define them, but the failure of the people in charge to honour that referendum will probably lead to a reconstruction of Britain. Yeah. Maybe uh, how do how, that we find so how, how do you how do you feel about devolution for England then, along the lines of a confederation, maybe with regional parliaments, whether it be along the lines no. of no, I don't no. like that. The reason I don't like okay. it is because when Scotland gets devolution, it gets a single uh, it, it, it has devolution as a single historic Scottish nation with a capital in Edinburgh. If you break up England into Scottish-sized chunks, you are destroying the historic uh, unity of England. The only, the only English devolution I would accept is one in which the whole country has its own parliament. And since we have a parliament in Westminster, um, you know, I, I don't see... There are various clever ways of doing this. It, there are clever ways of doing this which could work, given reasonable goodwill on both sides. But um, the cleanest solution, actually, is to break up the union. Um, for England to be re-established as an independent, sovereign country with, um, with, with its continuing institutions and its continuing Westminster Parliament, and for Scotland to go its own way. Uh, there are, as I said, there are various compromises, but they do mm. require more goodwill than I currently believe to be possible. Right. Right. So uh, before we go, um, Sean, you've got some quite interesting ideas about how libertarians should act if they want to be more successful than we have been. Which is right. Let's face it, let's not very. Let's oh right, okay. Well, uh, so far, most people who've come up with solutions have come up with solutions that involve committees and fundraising and campaigning, mm. uh, and usually creating institutions that fall into the hands of young men who spend eighty percent of the budget on cocaine and whores. That, that that's the nature of things. Um, I, I think a better solution for us, bearing in mind our objective circumstances, is that we should create a movement. The three of us sitting talking on Skype, we're not a movement, we're just three talking heads. When you have a movement, it means that um, if someone comes knocking on your door saying, excuse me, sir, would you like your windows cleaned? You find out if you're talking to a libertarian or a conservative, and if you are, you say, yes, here you are, here's a, you, know, you can fill the bucket over there. You, you give your preference to your own. You, you, build, mm. um, you build an intellectual movement that arises out of a set of personal and economic connections. That is... That's how the Jews did well in this country. That's how the Muslims have established a solid presence in this country. That's how Quakers, that's how Mormons, that's how virtually any um, successful minority group has come together and kept together. 
Uh, whereas when I see the conservative and libertarian movements in this country, all I see is a jostling mass of autistic intellectuals arguing about natural rights or utilitarianism or the Norway. Naval gazing. Naval gazing. Um, hmm. We we are not a movement. And, and would you say we you, lack? Yes. Would you say there's a lack of community within? There is no community. We're not a movement yeah. because we're not a community, and uh, that's one of the reasons why we've had so little success. It's not enough to be right. You you need to be able to um, you need to be able to communicate your rightness from a solid foundation of community. And we haven't even started to do that. Uh, Especially considering that when, say, people come over from leftism or something like that, they are likely to alienate a number of their friends and they have to have a mm. group of nice people to come to that will be their new friends. I mean, certainly for me, uh, involvement in meetups was quite a lot about, you know, creating somewhere for libertarians to come and speak to other libertarians and not feel so isolated. Mm. But um, you know, it, it, if I employ a car mechanic, I, I like to make sure that he more or less shares my general outlook, not agrees with me on every jot and tittle. Uh, he needs to be a competent mechanic. I'm not arguing yeah. for um, I'm not arguing for nepotism. What, what I'm saying is that if you want a car mechanic, find one who is competent and who also shares your general outlook. Um, in that way, you're doing yourselves a favor and you're doing the whole movement a favor. But, but the yeah. idea of scattering your very limited patronage w without regard to um, intellectual community is, is a waste of what, of, uh, what, let us face it, is a very limited pot. And, and so instead of um, asking for, instead of asking for a Scottish Libertarian Party, which will uh, put up candidates for Holyrood or something, um, which will almost certainly get nowhere at all, just start making sure that the next time you want your teeth filled, you find a dentist who is on your wavelength. Yeah, and also expect other people, if you have particular skills, to, to, to give their preference to you. I, I, I tentatively agree. Being leader of the Scottish Libertarian Party is a... I, well, I don't want to publicly say that you know, we were, we're not going to get anywhere. It's, yeah, I, I get exactly where you're coming from. Well, the Scottish Libertarian Party would do a great deal better if it rested on a solid base of libertarian communities. That's what we've actually been trying to build over the last couple of years. Uh, hat tip to Stevie and Steph, especially in that regard. So, yeah. um, before we go... We're working on it. <laughs> where can people find you if they want more? And uh, what should people be aware about to buy if they want more Sean Gab in their life? Well, if you go to my website, um, do you have the ability to flash subtitles onto this? Uh, no, because it goes out as it is. Oh, uh, but it will, it will be on the it'll be on the thumbnail. Yeah. Okay. Well, go to seangab.co.uk. There you can learn far more than you could ever want to about me, and you can also see my various books. Okay, great. It would Sean, be great if you could join us again at some time in the future, Sean. It would be it, it would be a great privilege if you were to. Um, it would be a great honour if you were to invite me again. Okay, well, that um, looks like that may very well happen in that case because it would be a great honour for us to have have you. Okay, be well and thanks for joining us once more. Okay. All right, guys. A little bit of exciting news. The listening figures have spoken, and it seems like a lot of you guys much prefer to listen to our shows that feature guests or when we're doing a deep dive on one topic. I sort of prefer those conceptual shows, although I have 
loads of fun doing the news shows because we have a real laugh doing them and Tam prefers those too. So we're doing another show on an online radio station called KA Radio called the Scottish Libertarian Broadcast. So if you want to tune into that, you can find that on KA Radio. Now, we've not quite figured out how this is going to work yet. Maybe sometimes if one of those is really excellent and we think you guys will love it, I'll upload it to the podcast feed as well. Or if we're not able to do the KA radio show because two shows a week is quite a lot, then we'll upload one of these episodes to there. But either way, to keep up to date with all our media, as a lot of you want to do, I mean, the difference in listenership is maybe 30 to 40% less. So most of you like all the shows. Get on to KA radio. Our second show will be going out tomorrow.